The Chronicles of Leadership Chapter 11 A Funeral Wendy Lockinge I told the students that morning that I was a friend of Brian Tiscothic's. But what sort of friend? We never had a private meal together. I knew if I needed help he would be there, but I never had reason to ask. Was he a lonely widower? I don't know. Did he know I was lonely? Don't know that either. Did he have children? Yes, at least I knew that. He didn't. Who was his closest relative? Someone to write a note of condolence to? Score that as another don't know. Who might be able to tell me? The biggest of the don't knows. I never even bothered to find out. Were we friends? We got on. I was comfortable in his company. He at least liked me. I knew that I liked him. That was all. The obituaries I've seen since have been curiously distant, as if they had been compiled from a few hurried lines out of who's who. A spectacular scientific career, honours, one wife, also deceased. His organisation, Meniscus, has also has continued to be reticent. I've come across only one press release which added little to what could be found in the obituaries. And now the funeral. The press release indicated it would be a private affair at the request of his family. But the university will be represented. Any funeral these days brings back dark memories of one that I was denied for Robbie. Would it have helped at all if I had at least been granted a proper burial for him? I rather doubt it. Today the ceremony will be held at the church somewhere in Kent where Triscothic's wife is buried. It is for close family and a few invited representatives from Meniscus and other organisations with which Triscothic was associated. We took the ageing Bentley, now part of a little controversy at Ermiston regarding its rub and running costs. Two brothers, Matthew and Newton Hughes, are its designated drivers. One is as loquacious as the other is taciturn. For obvious reasons, they are known as Matt the Chat and Newt the Moot, respectively. To our relief, Newt the Moot was our allocated chauffeur for what was to be a lengthy journey. The Dean is to accompany me. John King would like to attend, but status outranks suitability or sentiment in these matters. We arrived at Canterbury on a misty January day, chilly for that part of southern England. We passed a freshly prepared open grade in the churchyard on our way into the service in the medieval church. We placed ourselves towards the back of the modernised interior, which was silent beyond the gently playing organ music coming from a concealed source. Punctuated by those coughs which reverberated around would otherwise be a place and time of reverent silence. The family mourners occupied the front pew. I recognised the large figure of Sir Mervyn Bulletin, Chief Inimiscus Executive Officer. I assumed he was with his wife and children, two schoolgirls of similar ages to Jess and Penny. The vicar indicated that the family was still coming to terms with Brian Triscothic's sudden and tragic death, and that a later ceremony of remembrance was planned at the university for his many friends and colleagues from the business and scientific communities. Today's service was a moment to reflect on the inevitability of death and the comfort of knowledge that Brian had been reunited with his much-loved wife in life everlasting, and so on. 
I was watching for anything out of the ordinary to develop. This was partly automatic from days on duty at such events. There were three people who particularly caught my attention. I mentally labelled them the mourner, the soldier and the man of power. The mourner was Sir Mervyn Bulletin and we had met several times before. Despite the trappings of success, he must have been a challenge to corporate image builders at Meniscus. The first impression is of a man aware that despite his large frame, he is never quite going to receive the respect that should be accorded to someone of his status. There's a testiness about him that he fails to conceal, a suspicion that he is about to be found out over some weakness of character. He's like the emperor in the story who realises that he has no claws and it's only a matter of time until the fact becomes evident to everyone around him. His displays of phony affection hint at malevolence. When he attempts to show sincerity, his features distort into a rictus and his eyes widen alarmingly. The soldier was seated close to where the dean and I were sitting, towards the back of the church. I judged him to be in his eighties. He had the unmistakably upright posture of a lifetime military man, which is probably why he caught my attention. Even now he stood over six foot in height, with barely a stoop. He was trimmed to the point of emaciation. His features were weather-beaten, the prow of a nose, inevitable moustache, residual hair in parade-ground order. He wore no overcoat. His grey suit was well-pressed, as was his crisply cuffed and collared white shirt. His tie was traditional findle black, as were his polished shoes. I decided he would have served as an army officer in the war of 1940-45, when he would only recently have been commissioned from Sandhurst Military College. Robbie would have been able to place him immediately, accurately identify his final career rank, and perhaps even his regiment, straggling to the graveside. The familiar words of the ceremony were intoned as the ritual proceeded in its timeless fashion. Sir Mervyn stepped forward to contribute his handful of moist soil, was making him even more obviously self-conscious than usual, or actor attempting to play a leader in a part that was beyond his capabilities. A few words at the graveside from the vicar, and the mourners began to disperse. Two attendants had begun refilling the grave before we had even left the churchyard. The dean and I exchanged a few obligatory words with Sir Mervyn, whose grimace was even more unpleasant. I was about to meet the man whom I had labelled the mourner. Outside the church, a line of three or four large cars were waiting to collect the funeral party. A little behind them, and looking slightly less well-polished, was the University Bentley. As Bullington and the other mourners were getting into the cars, an even more prestigious vehicle arrived. I recognised it as the sort of Rolls-Royce that would bring a royal personages to the university from time to time. A back window slid open. Sir Mervyn paused and then moved hurriedly towards the opened window. I was a few yards away and saw what happened clearly. A seated finger extended a hand as if in condolence to the meniscus CEO. A brief handshake was exchanged. Then, as Bullington leaned further into the car, the conceived finger, the still concealed figure briefly touched him on the cheek. Sir Mervyn's head jerked backwards as if he had been stung. The darkened windows closed and the Rolls-Royce moved slowly off and out of sight. 
the Dean and I hardly spoke on the long drive back to Wilmston. Hughes remained as mute as we might have hoped for. My thoughts would sometimes return to Brian Truscothic, but the Dean was probably more worried about the funding from meniscus that we would lose in the post-Truscothic era. I was also thinking about the mourner, the soldier and the man of power. What might bring them to the carefully managed ceremony? Who was the well-guarded occupant in the presidential limo? Why was Bulletin so terrified of him? What was his connection with meniscus? And perhaps with the death of Brian Triscothic? <laughs>